This is episode 56 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Jenny Reynolds. Jenny is an SLP currently practicing as advanced clinical specialist in the NICU at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Jenny developed several programs at Baylor University as a supervisor of the critical care and speech therapy team for over 10 years. Jenny created hospital-wide protocols and policies, including oral care policy, speaking valve policy, dysphagia management. Jenny's created a fees program for the adult acute care program and is the co-creator of an innovative fees program in the NICU. Her research publications have been in dysphagia. Jenny serves on the Texas Speech Hearing Association Professional Service Counselor. Jenny is a member of NAT Professional Collaborative. She is an adjunct lecturer at UT Dallas, Texas Women's University, and University of North Texas Speech Therapy Graduate Programs. Outside of work, Jenny serves in her community as a court-appointed special advocate with children in the foster care system. And I think Jenny's just a rock star. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. All right, welcome back, everyone. I am I am so excited for this episode. Um, not not really because it's something that I work with every day. In fact, I don't work with babies at all. Um, but this topic is so near and dear to my heart. And this is Jenny Reynolds um, from Baylor University Medical Center talking about starting a fees program in the NICU. So when my son was born, he had to spend 15 days in the NICU, and it's just gut wrenching. I don't if I don't know if anybody. Who else has been through it? I don't wish it upon anybody, but it's just awful. Um, and I think what I love so much about this interview here with Jenny is that she talks about the importance of really empowering the mother and who, in this case, the mother is the best advocate for the the patient, the baby. And there's so much clout that she gives to that point of view. And I don't want that to be overlooked with our adult population either, because I think, you know, what I would have wished for, for my NICU experience was that someone would have talked to me like Jenny does here. Um, you know, and I, I think as a SLP, I try to think of this every day in my practice. You you want to talk to your patient like they're your family member. They have rights. They have opinions. Their decisions matter to them. And I know that we're so empowered now to follow evidence-based practice, and, you know, that makes me so happy, but I don't want to lose sight of the compassion of it all. Um, and I know in, in our medical SLP solution membership, we just preach, you know, advocacy, compassion, and evidence-based practice, all equal parts. And I don't want this compassion component, compassion component, the tongue twister, to, to be lost here because every patient that we treat is somebody's mother, daughter, brother, sister, somebody. And I, you know, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I wasn't planning on <laughs> doing this little soliloquy here, but... Um, I don't want that to be lost on us, and I want us to remember that. So I guess, you know, the point I'm trying to make is I I really, I get so discouraged and so disheartened when I hear colleagues 
just going in and telling a patient or a family member, this is what you have to do, and this is what the evidence says, and this is what you have to do if you want to get better. Because, you know, I was on that other side of that with my son. And I, you know, being a NICU mom, I was just barked orders at, you know, this is what you have to do for your baby. And, you know, as much as they say mother knows best, but really when you're a new mom, you have no clue what the heck is best. <laughs> but, and I think of some of these family members too, that, you know, dealing with this, their their family member who's now a patient in a situation that they've never been in, they've never navigated. So I really want us to step away from, you know, barking orders of what's best, sitting down and demonstrating some compassion with these people. Um, you know, if you have to take a few minutes just to establish a rapport, just to establish a relationship with these patients, get to know them, hear their stories, hear what their wants and needs are. Um, and half the time you might not hear that because they may have communication impairments and that's what you're there to do anyways. But find out what matters to them. Talk to a family member. So, um, like I said, wasn't planning on going into this whole long rant, but, um, you know, Jenny's, this episode just, just got to me, just ate at my heart. So I'm, I'm so grateful for Jenny to come on and talk about this. And, um, it is September. So it is the MedBridge promo is going on and I, people keep asking if there is pediatric material in MedBridge and there is. So for 95 bucks, you get a free upgrade to their premium plan, which includes unlimited CEUs. They have tons and tons of videos in all areas of SLP. So uh, dysphagia, dysarthria, aphasia, voice, and there is lots of pediatric stuff too. So I know there's probably a lot of ped therapists listening here. Uh, so go to medbridgeeducation.com, use promo code SYP. Just a disclaimer, when you do use that code, I do get a commission off those sales that go back to this podcast. Uh, so just want to make that nice and clear. So what comes with the MedBridge premium plan? You get access to unlimited CEUs. You get access to their home exercise builder, which is really cool. Uh, you get access to patient handouts and their mobile app. So I just love to put on some of these CEUs while I'm driving on long trips in the car. Um, real easy way to just hear from some really good researchers and expert clinicians in our field. So again, go to medbridgeeducation.com. Uh, forward slash SYP, or you could just type in SYP as the promo code. And this is good for both new members and also for renewals. So thank you, MedBridge, for offering this for renewals as well. Um, and along with this, I've been getting lots of requests of when we're going to open reopen enrollment for the MedSLP solution. Don't have a specific date yet, but it will be in October. It is coming down the pike in a few weeks here. So we will be, re we will be opening enrollment for that real soon. And we do have some more PEDS um, expert clinicians writing more resources for that membership now. So we do have some mem some mentors, some PEDS mentors, NICU mentors in the membership that are answering questions for our PEDS SLPs. Um, but we are adding to that resource library there as well. Uh, and also, I also, people always wonder how they can donate to this podcast. And for the longest time, I I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm an SLP, guys. I don't know all this techie stuff. I try to figure it out. Um, I was using Patreon.com, which I still am using Patreon. So if you'd like to make a donation through Patreon, you can. But um, Patreon is like a monthly thing, and a lot of people don't like to pay monthly. They just wanted to pay at once or just make a one big donation. So I do. I finally figured out a way to set up a donation box on the website. So just go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com and off to the right, there is a donations box. Um, so you can just add whatever you would like to donate to this podcast 
to keep it going so I can keep hiring help so I don't lose my dang mind producing this every single week. But um, I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm so passionate about this. I love where it's gone. So thank you to everyone from the bottom of my heart that has donated to this podcast, to every single expert that's come on and given their two cents and presented the research in their specific field. So I'm so grateful that you know, it really is taking a village, and I, I love this entire village. So uh, without further ado, here is this awesome interview with Jenny Reynolds. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited and honored to have you on this podcast today. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm happy yes. to be here. Yes, of course. All right, so I said a little bit in the beginning about who you are, but if you want to tell the people who you are. Okay. Um, my name is Jenny Reynolds, and I am a speech pathologist in Dallas, Texas. I've worked at um, an acute care um, hospital, Baylor University Medical Center, for the past 20 years. And I have um, been involved in the um, and worked, worked all over the hospital and worked with adults in the trauma ICU and oncology and then stroke, but I've also been a part of and worked in the NICU for the past 20 years. Um, you know, models in the NICU change over time. And so I had um, initially a model where I was just doing the instrumental swallowing of valves in the NICU, the video swallow studies. And then we, um, as I became more integrated into the NICU, I, uh, with the occupational therapist and the physician, the neonatologist, we built a um, multidisciplinary fees team. Um, and so that is probably in the last, it's been a 10-year process, but we've had the team going for the last five years. And so um, that our physician, you know, honestly, where it kind of got started is our physicians were just questioning um, the radiation with the video swallow study and, and the use of barium and all of these things. And so they said, is there another way? And so we described the fees. I had done fees in the adult population um, for about 12 years at that time. And um, we talked to the physicians about it. And then that's where our journey got started. I love it. And well, and I love that you said that it, you know, it's been going on for five, almost 10 years now. You know, I get, I get so many emails from people that are like, I want to start this program today, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I love people's, uh, you know, I love their excitement. Um, yeah. but the reality is that's great to put goals in place, but it's not going to happen today. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I'll add a little personal piece in here. So my son was in the NICU for 15 days and for feeding issues, of course. And it was just, it was horrible because I so badly wanted to scope him, but I didn't know how to do baby fees. So I, yes. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so excited to have you on here because this is just so personal to me. And I always say in my next life, I'm going to come back and do baby fees. So yes. we'll, we'll see where that ends up. <laughs> but, all right. Um, so let's see, where, where do you want to start here, Jenny? Well, we can start um, just talking about a little bit, like I'll just kind of, if you want, I'd like to 
kind of describe as I started talking about our journey of what even how did fees in the NICU even come up and yeah, and why so um like I said our neonatologists were we 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 did video swallow studies. Um, the issue is, as we all know, is with the infants, we're giving them barium. We're not looking at breast milk or formula. And we know there's a lot of different viscosities, like as and formulas and obviously different breast milk and breast milk fortified. And so um, we know that with all those different viscosities, we're not exactly sure what we're testing with with Verabar and barium and so um, and the thicknesses of barium and so we're we're able to get some information about the physiology of the infant swallow but we're also missing some components um, knowing that these infants they're not being held during a video swallow study. They're not, and and so we wanted to ask some questions about would fees be possible um, in the NICU? And so I had gone to the Cincinnati Children's Fees Course, their pediatric fees course um, by Claire, you know, Dr. Claire Miller and um, Dr. Uh, Wilging, the ENT, and it's an excellent course on fees. I had also, I mean, when I was training for adults, I had gone to Susan Langmore's course, but um, the Cincinnati Children's Fees course for pediatrics, it was excellent. And they had an hour lecture on NICU fees and the utilization, clinical utility of fees in the NICU. And I talked to them afterward and just asked a lot of questions about how do they use it in the NICU? Why do they use it in the NICU? And, um, you know, they talked about using it for looking at secretion management, using it for some pre, like pre-feeding, looking at is the infant safe to start feeding, oral feeding, um, and then for some other cases where they felt like the infant wasn't maybe safe to transport to radiology. And so that gave me some ideas of how they clinically used it. And then I came back to our physician team at Baylor and we talked and um, we had to meet with risk management and compliance and legal and all of the wonderful things that we did to start the adult fees program. We actually uh, worked together to uh, talk about if infant fees would be possible. And like you said, you think that you're going to do this in maybe a year or two and then you're like, oh, this is a five-year process to build this program. Um, and then we had to look at competency and that was a big thing that risk management wanted to talk about for an extended period of time is how are you going to, I know you have a process to show your competency for adults, but how are you going to show your competency for this age specific population? And so I actually worked with an ENT from the children's hospital that uh, was willing to had privileges to come into our hospital and actually check off my competencies for oh, passing great. the scope with infants uh, in the NICU. And I, I felt, obviously, our compliance team felt really good about that. And I felt good about that because I knew from an, from a, um, anatomy perspective, it was going to obviously be very different than adults. And I, you know, in the, 
you can only learn so much in training at a course. And so I just wanted an ENT available so that, you know, I, I could learn from that ENT about um, normal anatomy versus abnormal anatomy of the infant. Um, obviously, knowing that several of these infants are intubated for extended periods of time and not knowing what is the norm of what you're going to see when you put, you know, when you do the endoscopy. So um, we decided that the ENT would come and observe like my first uh, five to 10 passes based on how I did with interpretation and passing the scope. And I felt like because I had done hundreds of adult fees, I felt like I was comfortable with, with he was comfortable with that number and I was comfortable with that number. Um, and then we set up a process. So I, I am not in a children's hospital. I'm in a birthing hospital, a level three NICU, but in a a large urban birthing hospital. And so I, we don't have access like a children's hospital to an in-house, you know, pediatric pulmonologist, ENT, cardiologist, all of that. We have to actually have the physicians come in either from the outside, from the children's hospital, or we have to ship the children's hospital for a further work at something extensive done at our birthing hospital. And so we actually just determined a process because I know at some children's hospitals, they have the ENT that does the endoscopy and the speech pathologist um, collaborates with the ENT to do the interpretation of the swallow. Um, with our hospital, that was just not going to be a, a setup that we could do because we didn't have an ENT that would be available to pass the scope every time. And so how we set it up is that I would be the endoscopist and then we would have one of our occupational therapists that would be the feeding therapist and feed the infant during the procedure. And then we have a cloud where we could put the video on the cloud and the ENT could review the video to ensure and to help me from a teaching perspective, is there anything that needs to be flagged from an airway or anatomical perspective? And um, our compliance team felt um, really um, that that was sufficient, that we were going to be able to um, ensure that these infants got what they needed. And if the ENT saw anything that they were concerned about, they would either come in and do their own, you know, um, flexible endoscopy, or um, if it was something significant, they would, the baby would need to be transferred to the children's hospital for a further workup and possible bronchoscopy. So, uh, rigid bronch. So um, I I think that I felt like that was um, an adequate um, setup for us, for our team. Now, I know at the large children's hospitals that are doing infant fees, they have the entire multidisciplinary team right there. The ENT typically does do the endoscopy and then the speech pathologist maybe the feeding therapist and doing the interpretation or they are doing the interpretation and potentially a parent or a nurse is feeding the infant. So there are several different models. And I just like to say in my teaching that I think all of the models are great. You just want to make sure that you have a setup and a process for competency. 
So um, that's kind of how we got started with our program. Um, And then that led to, okay, so we have our multidisciplinary team um, that also the next step was how can we get the equipment that we need? And so um, we actually, I would encourage everyone, we, we worked with our foundation and our hospital to get the um, finances to purchase the equipment because it is expensive. Um, I will say not, I I am definitely not paid by any of the (laughs) manufacturers, so I'm not endorsing a specific uh, piece of equipment, but I will say that Pentax Medical and Olympus both have pediatric um, video scopes and flexible um, um, fiber optic scopes. Um, we started with a fiber optic scope that was a 1.9 millimeter scope um, made by Olympus. It was the smallest fiber scope on the market at the time. Um, it was 1.9 millimeters at the tip and 2.2 at the sheath. Um, it is, it, it, so that's what we started with because it was the smallest on the market. Um, it worked great. It's just the image is grainier and smaller. Um, so we decided to purchase the video scope uh, that was 2.6 millimeters um, by Olympus. And, you know, the camera is at the tip of the scope and it's HD-like. Um, and I will say that the difference is amazing. And the infants were able to tolerate the 2.6 millimeter with no problem. We've used that on probably 150 procedures so far and not had any, we have never had a problem passing the scope in the NAIR. And typically I pass on the same side as the NG tube and we have had no problem. And it's probably about the same size as a six French NG tube, kind of between a six French and an eight French NG tube. The exciting news is that Pentax Metal just came out with a um, 2.4 millimeter video scope. So they have, uh, you know, the same quality and it's, it, and I've actually seen it. It's amazing quality and it's a little bit smaller. And so I'm excited to tell everyone, you know, if you're going to, um, start a program, I would encourage you if you can to get the money for the video scope, because I think the image is so much clearer. And I think you can get a lot better images, especially if you're going to have an ENT reviewing the video. Um, and it's nice that they, that there are a couple of options on the market. Um, and then at stores and Indo and some of those have other fiber optic uh, pediatric scopes. So there are some other companies that offer that. So, yeah. Yeah. I know. And you said that the image was smaller and grainier with the old system. I know a few companies now have the larger image available. So it's the size of the adult scope, which is great. Cause I know a lot of people didn't want to use the ped scopes because the image was so poor, but I'm not sure which companies, but some are definitely coming out with the much bigger image. So, you know, that's something to look into too, when you're trying out new equipment. Yes, absolutely. 
And if your facility is interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies, please check out our sponsor, NDOHD, that's NDOHD, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. NDOHD is a compact fee system. It's a maneuverable design that provides convenience to fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. It is designed by a speech pathologist specifically for fees with a system storage of 100,000 by 10-minute studies, highly maneuverable cart, integrated serial audio, remote access for service. So at Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. So reach out to them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fees, requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. And as always, I am eternally grateful to NDOHD for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So... um Yeah, so our first two steps was getting our competencies process set up, then obviously um, looking at equipment. And we did, you know, I always say, you know, there's, there's challenges when you ask a hospital to purchase equipment. But I think if you, if you work with your foundation and you get creative, there are ways and that we ended up finding a, they are our hospital, our foundation found a donor, a local donor that wanted to give to the NICU. And oh, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So it was exciting. And that was a way that, cause I don't know that we would have been able to get the equipment if we had not, you know, waited and been patient and and kind of given, we kind of gave a little pitch to our foundation to say, hey, this is what this is. We're so excited about it. And they were kind of excited about it once they heard what it was and felt like they could go um, sell it to a donor to to purchase. Um, and, and we did. And so that was exciting. And then we kind of worked with our physician team and our multidisciplinary team of dietitians and lactation and therapy um, neonatologists to develop our procedure and our protocol. And so that was kind of our next step. And that took a while to determine what did we want our, our fees protocol for bottle feeding and breastfeeding to look like and who did we want to be there. And, and I think that you know, my, one of my um, lessons learned is you just want to ensure that there's a lot of clarity of team roles and who's going to do what. And I think it, it helps on the front end to really have um, a, a, a great um, procedure that um, runs smoothly uh, when you kind of, when each person knows clearly what their role will be in the procedure, which I know seems simple, but I think we had to really talk as a team of, okay, even on our breastfeeding fees procedures, what is the lactation's role? What is the occupational therapist's role? What is the speech pathologist's role? And so we really worked on that and kind of, and looked at, you know, what do we want the inclusion criteria to be for this exam and all of those things. So, um, that, that took us a while and, and we worked on, Uh, refining our procedure and our protocol. And then at that point, we felt like 
um, you know, we were actually ready to um, actually have some patients and, and look for the best patient to start this on. And we, we did it with about 10 patients. And um, I think we were just really, we learned a lot of lessons about what to do and what not to do. And, um, and then our, our um, physician group encouraged us that if, basically they kept asking us, where's the research? Where's the research? Where's the research? And we said, well, there's lots of research in pediatric fees. But when you look at the studies that were done in Dr. You know, Cincinnati Children's did several of them. Um, and when you look at the studies, probably 15 to 20, the, the patients in the studies ranged anywhere from three months to 21 years old. So you had a wide range of pediatric ages. And so they said, well, what, but where are the studies that have been done in the NICU? And I said, they're not there. Yeah. <laughs> they're not out there. Um, and so of course our physicians were like, well, then why aren't we doing the study? And I said, what? I was like, I am a clinician. I am a yeah. clinician. And, and he said, okay, well, you can be a clinician, but we can also work on how do we set up a research study. So we ended up partnering with um, Texas Women's University and one of the PhD speech pathologists from there. And it was a really nice partnership for us, especially as clinicians and the physicians, to just help us with the IRB process and learning how to set up a research study um, because I had not done that before. And so that was, it was a hard process in a, in a learning curve straight up, but I am thankful for the, um, all of the people who came around us to help mentor us through this process. Um, and so we did do, um, a research study. We looked at, um, the title of our study was Determining the Efficacy of Using Fees Compared to the Video Swallow Study to Diagnose Laryngeal Penetration and Aspiration in Infants in the NICU. And our clinical questions that kind of drive this was, is fees safe and appropriate to use in the NICU population? That was our first question. We wanted to know, you know, will the infants tolerate this? Um, at what gestational age should we be trying this? And, um, you know, is it appropriate? Um, and then, two, we wanted to ask, can fees identify penetration and aspiration in infants? Um, you know, I assumed it could uh, based on my experience with adults, but I didn't know that. And so that was something we wanted to ask. And then um, we also wanted to say, could fees provide relevant information to a treatment plan and to determining a feeding plan? And so those were our clinical questions that then drove us to um, kind of look at our aims for the research study. Um, and so what we did is we had 25 infants in the NICU inpatient. Um, the mean gestational age was 39.9 weeks at um, admission to the research study. So that was the mean age of when, when we, they were enrolled in the research study. Um, because 
our criteria, our inclusion criteria for the research study was they had to be um, adjusted 37 weeks or above. So we felt like we are not going to do an instrumental swallow evaluation in our NICU until they've reached close to term age. So typically closer to 40 weeks, but we would include anyone 37 or above. Um, Did you? Okay. So you said you would include anybody 37 or above. Yes. Um, And we had 10 males, 15 females. We um, they all had had bedside clinical examinations, you know, feeding and swallowing exams by the neonatal therapist. Um, they had to be able to undergo a fees and a video swallow study. Um, and we did not include anyone, any infant with bilateral cleft lip and palate. Um, we actually had no cleft palate infants in the study, but I just, that was our that was our only um, exclusion criteria. Um, and then also if the infant, I mean, for whatever reason, if they were not autonomically stable to undergo instrumental swallow evals with a fees and a video swallow, then that was an exclusion criteria. Um, and we obviously, we had, um, obtained parental condemn every infant's uh, parent, and we um, had IRB approval. And so just to give you a little bit of information about our um, population of patients, uh, four of the 25 had had a PDA ligation, eight of the 25 had some sort of intraventricular hemorrhage. I mean, it could have been any um, one to four, but I mean, any, but they did have an I. Eight of the 25 had an IVH. Um, uh, 19 of the 25 were diagnosed with respiratory distress syndrome. Four of the 25 were diagnosed with um, gastroesophageal reflux. We know that probably all of them showed signs and symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux, but that four of them had the diagnosis in the chart. Um, 22 of the 25 had an NG tube and uh, 16 of the 25 had a nasal cannula and were on oxygen. Um, For our criteria for oxygen, they had to be on two liters or less. Um, We, I would not, I don't think that any of our infants were on two liters. I think some of them, we may have had a few on one liter and then several of them were on microflow. Um, the design was set up that they would receive, they were randomized to the video swallow or the fees first. And then within 24 hours, they had the addition, you know, the additional procedure, the second procedure, um, uh, that was something we were challenged on. We were asked why we did not do them simultaneously. And I said, well, I am, you know, I was new at the time to doing infant fees and I did not feel comfortable taking the baby to the video fluoro suite and trying to scope the infant at the same time. Um, I do know that there's a hospital in New York that is working on a research study 
on infants in the NICU, simultaneous video swallow and feed. Oh, awesome. So it, I, I hope that they, they are gathering data currently. And so hopefully in the next year or so, we may see that study come out. Um, but I, I did not feel comfortable trying that with this study. I don't blame you, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> they were not done simultaneously. They were done within 24 hours of each other. And we know that every feeding for an infant is different. We know that one feeding, they may be more fatigued. The other feeding, their state may be more sleepy. So obviously, I know that that impacted the results, but um, we just wanted to see, are we getting similar pieces of information overall? Um, and then within 24 hours of the second procedure, the, if the mother was breastfeeding and if the mother elected to do a breastfeeding fees, the third procedure would have been a breastfeeding fees. Um, we had five mothers that elected to have breastfeeding fees. So five of the 25. Um, and for protocol, we at the time did not have, um, <clears throat> we had several different, um, we had obviously our um, typical hospital grade nipples in the NICU, but we did not have a standard um, bottle system for home bottles in our NICU at the time. So now we have, and again, I'm not paid by any of these products. Um, we, we have Dr. Brown bottle system in our hospital now, which is nice because it has so many different flows, flow rates. Um, but at the time we did not have that system. And so, um, we had some different bottles and nipples uh, by Playtex that allowed us to have some different flows, a medium flow and a fast flow for our thickened um, viscosities. Um, and so we just went through a standardized protocol of nipples and bottles. And um, our research study is in the Journal of Perinatology in 2017. And our First author is Dr. Sudawala. That was our PI, our neonatologist. So if if you want, if anyone wants more information about the protocol, it would be in the study. Um, let's say that um, they had laryngeal penetration or aspiration on a specific bottle and viscosity equipment and viscosity trial. We went to the next one if there was if they were positive for penetration or aspiration, but that didn't mean that that's what we clinically recommended. We did have option at the end to go and do some clinical trials to determine the safest feeding plan. We just had to have a process of how we moved yep. through the protocol. Um, so with regard to, um, res oh, and then we had, um, after all of that was done, we, we took vital signs before the procedure, during the procedure, and after the procedure for fees and video swallow. And we also had, uh, two raters that were blinded after the study was completed and reviewed all of the videos. And um, we reviewed the videos for um, obviously the only things we were looking, the only data points we were looking at was we were 
putting, you know, positive or negative for laryngeal penetration and aspiration. Those were, we needed to narrow it down. And so those were our two um, data points that when we reviewed the video. Um, and then we did have to reach consensus. If we disagreed, we had to come to a consensus for the fees and VFSS comparison. Um, so with regard to results, we, from a safety perspective, we had no adverse events or major complications during the study. So we didn't have any issues of epistaxis, which is a nosebleed or laryngospasm. We didn't have any, um, and we had no infant demonstrate any major instance of autonomic instability. And so there was no significant change um, with vital signs pre-procedure and post-procedure. Um, we did have one infant, you know, when you look at the results of our study, we had one infant that um, had an oxygen desaturation after the procedure. And that was, um, we think it, it was during burping, it appeared to be a reflux episode and the infant did um, self-recover with, you know, just a couple of minutes. So, um, but some people see our numbers and they're like, well, I see a 52 on oxygen saturation. So I always feel like I have to say that infant did self-recover. And then in, in our, our mean and our average, there was nothing reached, um, a significance for having any autonomic instability uh, episodes. So we, we were happy about that. And then we also looked at inter-rater reliability between the, now we only had a limitation was we only had two speech pathologists reviewing the videos. Um, but, and we had no videos to train on for the fees. Um, you know, so typically you would do some consensus training beforehand, but we did not have those. And so um, we did define, obviously, if we saw for our definition for aspiration was that we had to see it go into the airway or we had to see it on the tracheal wall. Um, and so um, for our, for VFSS, our inter-rater reliability was 87% for penetration and 90% for aspiration. And for fees, our inter-rater reliability was 80% for penetration and 80% for aspiration. We felt like that was, it wasn't as high as we wanted it, but we felt like because there were only two raters and it obviously was something new for us, we thought that was pretty good um, for, um, especially since it was anything in nature for infants specifically. Um, and then the, the main question we had and that we've had from other people is, um, you know, we did break it up into presence and absence of penetration and aspiration for our inter reliability. And we think that potentially why there may have been a really low um, agreement on presence of aspiration for fees is because that is more difficult, obviously, to agree on. I mean, we know we laryngeal penetration, it's much easier to... Um, see if it's on the vocal cords and agree upon. But if, if you're determining whether you think it, it, it did go below the level of the vocal cords and determine aspiration, that was a little bit more, more challenging. And so, um, 
Um, another interesting finding is when we looked at the trials in comparison, the video swallow to the fees, even though they weren't done um, at the same time simultaneously, um, we did find that the fees picked up 18 more instances of laryngeal penetration than the video swallow on comparison uh, trials. And so um, I think that we know that from the adult literature that sometimes, you know, that fees can pick up more instances of laryngeal penetration is more sensitive um, in certain respects um, than the video swallow. Um, but I think it was interesting that we also saw that um, with the infants. Um, and then for our breastfeeding cases, we, um, we only had five that we did. Um, I will say we had not, we had practiced probably about five before the research study. And when I, I I'm going to tell you, it's definitely one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And honestly, really deciding why are you doing it? Like, why are you doing a fees on breast? Because a lot of times you can, lactation and therapy can really um, determine the issues with um, swallowing and breastfeeding clinically. They can help the moms with positioning and latch and, and um, you know, if manual compression is needed and um, looking at, at all of those different compensatory strategies on breast. And you may not need a fees to help give you any additional information. Um, but I think in some instances, we have had moms, and this is where we feel like it's been pretty successful, is we've had moms where they are concerned because they know that their infant is aspirating on specific uh, maybe even breast milk with the bottle um, in specific bottle trials, but they they don't they think maybe breastfeeding is going okay, but they'd like to confirm that breastfeeding is safe and going well. And so I, that is where I've found it to be really valuable. Is it is a it gives a lot of visual feedback to that mom, and if the mom feels comfortable with breastfeeding, then when you add putting a scope in while the mom is breastfeeding, the mom is able to actually watch on the video and say, I see that my baby's safely swallowing. And I'm going to tell you, I, I have had probably, you know, it may be only five or six moms, but after the procedure, they say to me, I know that my baby's been having trouble with the bottle swallowing, but I really feel safe that my baby is safely feeding with uh, breastfeeding. And thank you for allowing, confirming that. And, and sometimes it was just trying a different position and we could see that the baby wasn't aspirating and the mom felt comfortable, the baby felt comfortable. And, and so I would say that clinically I don't, recommend a breastfeeding fees very often because sometimes um, we, I will say our physicians are very um, supportive of breastfeeding. And so they're not going to take that away from a mom if that is the mom's goal. Um, but sometimes we have used it as a way to provide some 
feedback and confirmation for the mom that, hey, let's try to find the safest position for breastfeeding. And the ENT's already, you know, diagnosed the laryngomalacia, but we're trying to figure out what's the best positioning for feeding. Um, and so um, we got some good information from the five breastfeeding fees cases that we did. Um, but again, it was still limited because it was only five. So um, that's our study. And we're excited that there actually has been um, a study done by Willette in 2015 from that was actually out of Lori Children's Hospital. And they looked at retrospectively at breastfeeding fees cases. All the cases were breastfeeding fees. They were not bottle feeding fees. Um, and it was still a wide kind of range of infant ages. Um, it wasn't done specifically in a NICU. I think it was more in an outpatient setting. But they also determined that breastfeeding fees was safe and uh, gave, provided some good information for feeding. And then there was a study that came out this year, and the last name is V-E-T-T-E-R, um, and it's, it came out in 2018, and I think it was in a pediatric pulmonology journal, um, and it's out of Spain, and it's also looking at bottle feeding uh fees in the NICU. So that's exciting that, that that actually just came out. And it was a retrospective study um, looking at, I think, 62 uh, infants uh, receiving fees around term age. I think the mean age was around 40 weeks. Um, and they also showed that they they were able to identify laryngeal penetration and aspiration and look at um, you know, feeding plans and show that it was a reliable procedure. So. Well, that's awesome, Jenny. I'm just, I'm just in awe of all of your hard work that you've done. <laughs> this is incredible. I mean, especially being a NICU mom, it's nothing like you've ever experienced. So. Oh, I cannot imagine. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So any, anything you can do to support those moms is, is incredible. So. I think what I just love the most about what you said is, you know, you didn't really know what you were getting into. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kept asking the questions and getting your team involved and you asked the foundation for a grant and you started this study. And, you know, I think a lot of people get discouraged because they think, you know, everyone is just handed this grant on a silver platter, yes. you know, or here's your brand new shiny equipment, go use it, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, or, or a university calls and says, we'd love to use you for a study. And, you know, that's really the real, not the reality of how things go. So, exactly. So I, I commend you for reaching out and collaborating with all these other people and just asking for help. <laughs> yes. Yes. That would be exactly, that would be my advice is, you know, I think that, um, I, I was very intimidated because I know that there are, large research teams with people that have a lot of funding and a lot of support. And um, I think that, you know, if you can collaborate potentially with a university or collaborate with one of the larger, you know, research teams, um, you know, there's, there's so much work to be done and there's so many questions to ask. And, and, um, you know, I think even ASHA is encouraging clinicians to be 
clinical researchers and to encourage you to work with other researchers if you'd like, I mean, if that's something you're interested in doing and there is support and funding for that. Um, And I think that that's been really nice as we move forward. I've been able to talk to some of the amazing researchers in our field and, and, you know, honestly, so thankful for Dr. Langmore and several of the researchers that are saying, hey, I'm happy to give you some advice and to help you look at your next study or what you're going to do or what you're interested in doing. Because um, even just ensuring that we're gathering the correct data, all of those things, um, obviously, that is not my my genius zone at all. I don't have my PhD. And so I'm like, I can go be a good, good clinician, but we need these researchers and to partner courage how to move forward and ensure we're collecting the good data um, that could be used for a potential study at some point. And um, so I think that's been a big learning curve for me. Um, and then also just um, like you said, just really developing a strong team, um, your medical team and your therapy team, um, and partnering with, you know, whether it's your foundation or, and just getting creative of how to work together to be able to build, if this is a program that you'd like to build in your, in your NICU. Um, so, and I, I've been so encouraged because I've been able to hear about other hospitals who've gone out and really been able to work together. And I think one of the questions I get all the time is, um, well, my model doesn't look just like your model. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't need to. Your model <laughs> could, your model may be very different. I mean, I had one hospital tell me, well, we're always going to have a nurse feed the baby and the speech pathologist is going to scope and the ENT is going to review the video. And I'm like, that's a great model. You know, that, yeah. <laughs> that model works too. You know, um, I've had one question I get to a lot is why we are not allowing parents to feed the baby while I scope. And I will tell you, and this is only in my experience, I don't want to, there may be hospitals out there. And I I actually have spoken to one of them at ASHA. Um, It was a hospital out of West Virginia that has a model where the parent is feeding and the speech pathologist is scoping. Um, I personally think I get such better images with a a clinician feeding the infant versus a parent um, because they're able to calm the infant and they're able to keep the infant more still, um, the head still and everything. So I feel like my images are a lot better when a, a skilled clinician is feeding the infant. Um, I have gotten some feedback from some other hospitals where they've allowed a parent or a student to feed the infant. And they have said that sometimes the procedure doesn't go well. And and that can only be my guess as to why um, I think maybe the procedure wasn't as smooth is I think obviously we are putting a scope in the infant's nose. And so it's not comfortable. And I always tell parents, 
please give me a couple minutes to allow the infant to, to become calm and to start um, sucking on the bottle and um, start begin swallowing. Um, and I usually see after about 90 seconds, the, the skilled clinician is able to um, help the infant calm and initiate sucking and swallowing so that you really have a good suck swallow burst um, to begin watching swallowing on the fees. Um, but I, I think that it takes a really skilled team to have those a really successful procedure, but that's, that's only my experience. And like yeah. I said, I've, I've heard from some other hospitals that they do have a model where the parent feeds and that they have been successful with that. And I think that's awesome. I, I would love to get to a place where we do that, but I also think one thing that I um, have noticed recently is, you know, uh, I wasn't expecting this. The parents, I think truly the visual feedback for the parents, they feel very empowered. Like they start asking questions as they're watching the video and they then are able to talk to the physician with more information. And I think that's very empowering. I mean, and I have not been a NICU parent but a parent with a baby in the NICU, but I can only assume based on the feedback they've given me that, hey, I was a part of this procedure. I watched what happened. I know what's happening with my baby swallowing. And now I can talk to the doctor about that and be a part of the treatment planning process. And so we kind of like to say that parent competence and competence was an outcome we weren't expecting with infant fees. And I think because we do a longer procedure, we're not doing a three-minute video, a 15-minute fees and look at many different trials and bottles and consistencies and, and um, strategies, pacing and all these things. Um, the parent is able to really see a lot and, and learn a lot. And I think that was a really great outcome that we weren't expecting. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said. I think as being a NICU mom, you know, you said you, you guys have the, the skilled clinician do the feeding. And I think as a mom, I, I would have appreciated that because as much as I know about feeding, but I was also a first time mom, so I knew mm -hmm. nothing about babies. <laughs> right. I was like, I don't even know how to feed this thing. You know, yes. like I was begging, I'm like, show me how to feed this thing. I don't know what, to, I don't know how to feed this thing. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I think just having, watching someone be able to successfully feed your baby gives you the empowerment that, hey, if she can do it, I might be able to learn something about exactly. that. Exactly. So, you know, I, I know everyone says mom knows best, but like sometimes they don't come with instruction manuals and you don't have a, <laughs> have a dang clue what to do. So, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, oh, and, and so my baby didn't have NICU fees, but then at four months we went to the ENT and the ENT wanted to scope him. Mm -hmm. um, and I just got so excited, you know, I'm there devastated because I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with my yes. baby. But on the other hand, he was like, well, we're, you know, do you mind if I stick an endoscope in his, in his nose? And I was like, no, I've been wanting to do that. <laughs> so it went from, yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's like, it's, you know, if you don't want to come in the room, you don't have to. And I was like, no, I want to see. And he's like, okay. You know, we, and he said, we just ask you, you don't touch the baby. You let us do it. You know, you're yeah. more than willing to stand there and watch and, you know, but let us let us do the feeding. And I said, that's totally fine. And 
So I just stood there like I all of a sudden switched out of distraught mom mode and into SLP mode. And I just yes. was watching the screen like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So like you said, I mean, it really was empowering. You know, my son did end up having laryngomalacia. But to see that and to know that the different positions helped so much and helped his reflux so much. So, yeah, like you yes. said, the, the knowledge is power. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I actually I've. I uh, have experienced it, not with my own child, but one of my best friends, she said, Jenny, she actually adopted a baby. And she said, Jenny, will you come watch my baby feed? And I'm like, sure. And I watched it and I'm like, you don't want to be asked that as a speech pathologist. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, well, I think you need to go see the ENT because I I suspected it might be laryngomalacia. And we it was really great to watch this ENT scope the baby and teach the mom in front of me because I obviously was not allowed to <laughs> say anything, but yeah. it was really great to, to watch. And it gave her so much information. And she was like, oh, that's why my baby sounds like that. And that's why. And then all of the recommendations he made, they they all helped tremendously. So it, it was, it's, it's really, um, it's great. I think that we've only, we always tell the parent they can leave during the procedure if they're uncomfortable or they feel like they may cry or, you know, whatever. And honestly, I've only had one parent leave and it was just, she just said, I'm really emotional. And I, I get emotional anytime my baby cries, understandably. Yeah. And, and it was, um, actually a baby who had not been in the NICU very long at that point. And so I understood and she, she left and then she came back in toward the end of the procedure. Um, but I always tell parents, this is another lesson learned. I've always told parents they're in the, the control seat. So I said, if you want me to take the scope out, all you have to say is take the scope out. And I don't care who says it in the room. I'm going to take the scope out. And I think most parents it, I, I can only guess it allows them to feel a lot more comfortable because I, I've never had a parent ask me to take it out. But it's yeah. interesting that um, I, I will tell them, you get to make that call. If you are uncomfortable or feel like your infant is uncomfortable, I'm going to take the scope out. Um, yeah. And so I think I think that, that that's another thing. We just have to, we, we try to make this a very, a procedure that the parents are involved and they feel supported and they also feel in control because I know there's so much that's out of their control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I even do that with my adult patients. I'll tell them, you know, if you don't want to do this anymore and it's uncomfortable, we take it out. Yes. You know, it's not a big deal. It's who cares? Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that, Jenny. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, Really, uh, the only other couple, the questions we get quite a bit is, one, do we use any dye for uh, the infants um, to help with visualization? I will tell you that is kind of a hot topic in the infant fees world. Um, I think with the video scope you don't really have to I I have done it without the dye and the image is so good that typically if there's not a lot of secretions in the larynx then um, you really don't need it Um, our 
we actually put the question back to our pharmacy team and our neonatologist and our pharmacist went and looked at every inactive ingredient in the green dye, um, the food are the different dyes, blue dye and green dye and different things. Um, and they ended up deciding that the McCormick's food grade green dye, the ingredients in there, they were comfortable with the, the amount and the level of all the different, they looked up each ingredient and all of that. And um, so that is, we, we, if we're going to use dye, we use the McCormick food grade green dye and they actually now have an organic uh, food grade dye um, that McCormick's is making. Um, and then just to say um, some of the other hospitals use uh, Cincinnati in their course talks about Aquadex, which is the baby vitamins. It's a, it's a vitamin brand and that it's a little bit um, from my understanding, it's an orange color and it dyes the milk. So that is another option. Um, the issue with that is there is a smell and a taste component to that. Um, so you have to ask the question, does that change for the infant at all, the procedure? Because some nurses will say they feel like it changes uh, the infant just in regular bottle feeding. Um, um, and so that's, that's just a question. I, we have not used it, so I'm not sure. I, I think um, Cincinnati, their pharmacist and their medical team felt like that was the safest dye to use, which I completely understand and respect. Um, and so that, that's another option. Um, and then uh, some other, I was trying to think about what some of the other hospitals have told me. They did say there are some plant-based dyes. Um, and so they've looked into those. So I would just encourage anyone who's building this program to make sure you include your pharmacist and your physicians to find out what they're most comfortable with. And then based on your um, scope, you may not need the dye if you don't have to. And then the other question that comes up is topical anesthesia. And um, I, um, our physicians determined that they did not want us to use any type of lidocaine um, just because for the chance that it could affect heart rate or blood pressure, they did not want us to use it. Um, now, obviously, several ENTs will tell you they don't think that it affects anything and that, that you should use it. So um, I have seen ENTs use it, um, but I, and I know some hospitals all all use, you know, do use it on every procedure, but in our um, hospital, we do not. And I think that Cincinnati, uh, we had a speech pathologist that went to their course last year. I think they said potentially under a year old, they do not. So um, again, I would just encourage you to go back to your ENT and your physician, neonatologist, and uh, discuss that with them. Um, I will say we, we use a K, you know, like a lubricant jelly on the scope. And I feel like that it truly, you have no problem, no trouble passing the scope. The one thing that I have learned is 
infants that have been on oxygen for an extended period, of, there is a lot of dried mucus that knows. And so I think it's more irritating for those infants than any of the other ones. And so what I try to just use a, you know, long, you know, Q-tip and work on trying to get some of that uh, thick mucus out of the nose before I scope, because like, you know, like anyone, you would guess that is a little bit uncomfortable if you're pushing a scope through that. So um, that's just, those are just some of the observations I've had. And we we do get those questions quite a bit. Um, and I think it's very hospital specific and NICU specific. Do you, do you think that the dye is even necessary, Jenny? Because you think of, you know, milk is like a, and milk and formula is like a white color. Yeah. And I know even like Dr. Susan Langmore's switching, not switching, but has started using a lot more white dyes yes. in hers yes. to see it better. So I would just think with babies, it may not even be necessary. I was going to say, I really, with the fiber scope I was using, I felt like I needed it. But with the video scope, I will tell you that I think that the images are really good. And that if, if, you know, I, I have noticed with some of the um, neurologically um, impaired, like infants that, like HIE infants um, that have <clears throat> a neurologic hit to the brain, um, I and I think that those infants sometimes they they do have a difficulty managing their secretions and. When secretions get all mixed in with the breast milk or the formula, sometimes it's difficult to determine which is which. However, I think on infants where they're managing their secretions adequately, I think it's, it is very easy to identify formula and breast milk. Sometimes the breast milk can be so translucent. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But formula, for sure. I mean, it's it's easy to tell the difference. So hopefully, you know, um, we can get to where, and especially with comfort level of the of the endoscopist or the person who's doing the uh, interpretation, they will feel comfortable potentially not using dye if you don't need to. So, yeah. Well, cool. I love it, Jenny. Thank you. Oh, you, do you guys have a course at Baylor? Yeah, we did. We did our. We did a course um, this past February, um, and we had um, about seventy-five people there, and um, we were able to do a didactic section, really talking about our protocol and procedure, and then we did. Um, some different breakout sessions where one, a therapist could, if they had never done any passes on normals, that they could scope each other. Then we have this infant CPR doll. So we have a little doll that has all the infant anatomy and we allowed people to, to pass the scope on the infant doll, which I think was good because they were able to work on um, you know, determining their work with their team on positioning and how, and feeling how, you know, it is a little different, obviously, than an adult. Um, and then we did some video case studies. So we will be doing another course um, this coming February 4th through 6th, 2019. Um, our registration hasn't opened yet, but we will um, be putting that out on ASHA and the National Association 
education, neonatal therapy, and um, some social media outlets to market that. Oh, awesome. Well, good. All right. I love it, Jenny. Um, Let's see. Any final thoughts? I think we covered everything. Yeah, I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This has been so wonderful. And I know, and I'll I'll post your notes here too, um, if anybody's interested further. Jenny wrote out all the research and a lot of really good information about their study, and I'll post a link to her study as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Jenny. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Of course. This has been wonderful. Okay. Have a great day. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.